for the global economic crisis, the G20 has emerged as the primary forum where world leaders convene to plan a global response. Hi, welcome to the hot seat. I'm Justin Guess. With us to discuss the most recent meeting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is Professor David Held. Thanks very much for being here. Pleasure. All right, well, let's begin with the circumstances. Reflecting on the economic crisis, how serious is its state right now? Do you think it's stabilizing? Well, I think the first thing to say about the financial crisis, which broke in October last year, is it is probably the most profound crisis of the global economy since the Great Depression. There is no question it is, it is a crisis of profound multidimensional consequences that links together two economic sets of problems, a banking crisis, a financial crisis on the one side with a crisis in the real economy on the other, and these two things reinforce each other in a very negative downward spiral. The credit crunch, um, which reached, it, I suppose, its greatest moment of symbolism with the failure of Lehman Brothers, froze the banking system. And that, of course, reinforced a recession that was already developing. The fall in GDP, it's interesting to note, across the world's developed countries is faster and has been faster during the last year than during the Great Depression. There's one sobering thought we should bear in mind. The Great Depression was never an economy or world economy falling off a precipice. It was a staggered series of declines over time. And we cannot yet say with confidence that we're through the worst. The financial crisis has stabilized at vast cost to the taxpayer. In a sense, the cost of the crisis has been postponed into the future through debt, public debt. So that is true. And the economy, the world economy overall, has, has stabilized. There are signs of strong growth, but not in the West, interestingly enough, from Asia. And here's an interesting final reflection. In the past, the world has depended on the United States economy to bounce out of recession, to drag the rest of the world out. Today, we depend on China and Asia. And this reflects a change in the balance of global economic power. The world is no longer simply driven by the West. Economic growth on a global scale is powered by the Gulf and by Asia, particularly China. The Asian countries are coming out of the crisis very rapidly. China's growth has returned to very sustained high levels. And I think what this means for the future is that we're on the verge of a repositioning of global power away from the G1 and the G5, G6 and 7 towards a much more multipolar, complex political and economic world. So perhaps that would explain why the G20 is now the central site of debate. I think this is of you know, profound significance and it's happened very fast. Most of the levers of global economic policy have been tightly in the control of the G1, as I call it, the United States and Europe since 1945. 1945 and the post-war settlement locked to the Bretton Woods institutions put the United States and Europe in the driving seats of the World Bank and the IMF. This went all the way through to crucial regulatory committees for the banking system, the Basel Committee and so on all locked into Western economic interests and an expression of Western views about economic policy. So we might say that the whole origin of so-called light-touch regulation, which allowed the banking bubble to build up and build up and build up, was a Western conception, particularly an Anglo-American conception of appropriate regulation, globalized across the world through these regulatory mechanisms and institutions. This has fallen now flat on its face. But there's a recognition with this 
that the economic world is changing, that Asia is increasingly critical to the balance of the world economy, that without China, key things cannot be made to happen, key rules, systems can't be made to change. So the G20 is a serious and I think quite profound recognition that the world's key economic fora now have to reflect a diversity of voices, including the core developing countries. This is a very big change from 1945. 1945, it's the core post-war powers that embed themselves in the architecture of the UN institution and the Bretton Woods institutions. This has essentially crumbled with changes in the balance of global economic and I think political power as well. And the G20 is one crucial recognition of this shift. So what do you think they achieved in Pittsburgh? I think the first thing to say is that a lot of global fora are talking shops in the loose sense that there's a lot of rhetoric but not much action. I think we have to give now credit where credit is due. The London G20 meeting followed by Pittsburgh have suggested a real serious intention to change institutional structures and rule mechanisms in four key areas. And I think these are serious indicators of policy change. The first, we've already talked about the G20, but I'll just mention it again, is it's now recognized that the G20 will be the primary organization for, the global, for global discussion of economic policy. The G7 and G8 will remain important for security issues, but the G20 will now be the entrenched organizational force for deliberation of economic policy. That's a very significant change. It will rotate, presidency of, of the G20 will rotate on an annual basis to different countries, and they will meet every year into the future. One significant change. Two, uh, on bank capitalization and bank regulations, there are also significant developments. Banks will now be required to hold much more considerable reserves than they did in previous eras, which should stop some of the high leveraging taking place that was characteristic of the previous decade or, or so. Bank bonuses have also been addressed, with banks now required not to award bonuses in excess of a certain percentage of their turnover, and with a provision to claw back bonuses should banks do badly and even fail. Finally, the IMF has been boosted quite considerably, both by extending its board to encompass China and other powers on a more regular participatory basis, by recapitalizing the IMF in a significant way, and by making the IMF also the center of peer review of the G20's economic policies. So the economic policies of each of the G20 countries will be subject to review by the G20, a review carried out by the IMF. So in these four areas, bank regulation, uh, bonuses, IMF, and peer review, among others, there are quite substantial changes. Now, whether these changes will be effective depends, of course, on individual countries. And I am concerned that although these are substantial changes and we should welcome them, the enforcement mechanisms for these changes rests on a country-by-country -country basis. So countries can create excuses or means for saying they're going to put these issues into effect, these changes into effect, but actually not doing. And the only mechanism for ensuring that countries of the G20 will do these things is peer pressure, black reports, 
negative comment, negative global press concern. Sometimes this is important. Sometimes peer pressure at the level of countrywide pressure is significant. But I'm afraid without some kind of more serious institutional enforcement, either by the G20 or the IMF, some of these policies, good as they are and well-tensioned as they are, may not bite as deeply as we would like. Then what are the next steps? Well, one interesting step that the G20 has signaled, and I think this is a very intellectually and politically exciting phenomena, pushed particularly by Angela Merkel and by Germany, is the idea that the financial crisis should be paid not by the taxpayer, as it is being currently, but by the financial markets themselves. Now, in, this is an interesting theoretical thought. Karl Marx always argued, if I might put the point a little polemically, but going back to the old master, that the state was an executive committee for managing the affairs of the bourgeoisie. And in a sense, he was right. Here we have this catastrophic global capitalist crisis, and who pays the bill? We pay the bill. The taxpayer pays the bill. The middle classes and the working classes pay the bill. In public debt into the future, and public expenditure cuts will be the order of the day in, in the years to come. The burden currently is on the taxpayer. But the Germans and others have suggested that we should introduce a financial market tax to draw out revenue from the global financial markets to put back into national treasuries to defray and mitigate the costs of the global financial crisis. This is a very exciting idea. And it goes back to James Tobin and the Tobin tax, an idea that James Tobin, an American, put on the table some two decades or so ago. And he argued that financial markets can heat up too quickly. One way to calm them is to have a transaction tax. And he pointed out that a small transaction tax could raise billions and billions for investment in public goods. So this was an idea launched, as it were, on the world a long time ago, which everyone has neglected or actually dismissed rather cynically, especially policymakers, especially entrenched interests, especially bankers. But interestingly now, it's back on the table. And if it were to happen, and it's a big, big if, I think it would be a very interesting development and the beginnings of the raising, potentially, of a global source of tax on financial markets, which could be used either to defray the cost of the financial crisis in particular countries or as a development pot to put into developing countries to help defray the worst costs and impacts on the poorest countries or to be used for global public goods. It's a very exciting idea. Will it happen? I don't know. The broader and last point I would make is the issue of enforcement. The global financial crisis has cost hundreds, hundreds of billions of pounds. Um, in fact, it's quite interesting to note that the global financial crisis in one year alone has cost 10 times more than the world spends on arms and the military. And the world spends already on arms and military 700 times as much as is spent on global health. So the global financial crisis has cost 10 times as much. These are astronomical figures. Will the regulatory changes, will the policy changes, welcome as they are, deep bite enough to slow the banking system down, to slow the growth of financial global financial transactions, and to help put money back into public goods nationally, regionally, and globally. This all depends on enforcement. Will the enforcement mechanisms be strong enough? Frankly, I doubt it. And there's another worrying thing. 
which again, interestingly enough, although I'm not a Marxist, Marxists would predict, and uh, to go back to Ralph Miliband, who once taught at the LSE, he argued that the state is a capitalist state because the very same people, who people, the economic classes, people, the political classes, and it's interesting to note here, that this very same bankers who were in charge of the banking system that partly triggered the crisis, most of them are now in place advising states at the highest level how to get out of it. So are they likely to, to recommend tough enforcement mechanisms that will bite sufficiently? I doubt it. All right, that'll do it. Professor David Held, you are off the hot seat. Thank you very much for being with us, and thank you for being with us for this edition of the Hot Seat. Please tune in next month.